you have your Bible, how about if you open it up to Acts chapter 2. As Michael said, we've been working our way through the book of Acts, and um, this morning will be no exception, but some of what you're going to hear is going to sound pretty familiar, um, because uh, once a year we try and take on Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, just to remind us of why we do church the way we do it. Why do we focus on the four principles that are so important to us? And um, so if you've been at New Hope very long, you've heard some of this before, but perhaps you're new to church, this will be brand new to you. But every time we recognize that God can speak to us. So this morning you're going to have notes in your bulletin. If you want to take notes and follow along that way, you're welcome to do that. Um, If you don't need notes for yourself personally, just lean to the person next to you and say, I'm taking notes for you this morning. (laughs) Okay, let's pray together before we step into the Word. Would you do that with me? Father, we recognize that what we're about to do is mysterious, that your Holy Spirit can meet us right at the point of our need by reading stories and looking at the reality of what you did in history. So we confess that we don't thoroughly understand all that takes place in a moment like this, but we surrender to it in recognizing that you can speak to us and that you can lead us. You can address issues that are going on in our own personal lives. You can address issues within the church corporately. Whatever issue is represented by these hundreds in this auditorium right now, I ask that you would speak into our lives, that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher and our guide, and that you would give us understanding of your word as a result of it. Father, we would pray for this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Love this quote that you're going to see on the screen. Dr. Vance Havner was a theologian that lived in the early part of the last century, and he kind of nailed it when he said it this way. He said, specifically, we are not going to move this world by criticism of it, nor conformity to it, but by the combustion within it of lives ignited by the Spirit of God. Absolutely love that. We are seeing in Acts chapter 2 the story of lives ignited by the Spirit of God. Individuals who are completely surrendered to what God was doing, and they recognized what God was doing, so they were willing to surrender to it. We discovered in the last two weeks what had been a church, a group of 120 people, exploded into this group of 3,000 people. So what had been a small church the day before became the very first megachurch in history. And the result was this. Throughout the Roman world, lives began to be transformed and changed. As a matter of fact, around the entire globe, people began to discover what it meant to walk with Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. The very fact that you and I are here today, this morning, in worship and in study of God's Word is a representation that they took seriously what God asked them to do 2,000 years ago. We are a reflection of their activity So how do we understand this, this historical event and what took place in Acts chapter 2? Well, from the big picture, these are people, as Dr. Havner has said, who are indeed ignited by the Spirit of God. The church in a smaller microcosm was surrendered to the Holy Spirit, and the church took seriously Jesus' instructions, specifically his instruction to be a witness. And I know that's where most people check out. Most people who identify themselves as Christians say, well, I've got to do that witness thing. That's really, really hard. I want you to see a new view on witness this morning. 
how people see you in your walk with Christ. And that's the way we're going to approach Acts chapter 2, the way that you witness in the way that you live. So what you're going to see in Acts chapter 2 is what's going to play out is a series of brief vignettes. Each verse between verse 42 and verse 47 is like a snapshot on history. We see sentences that explain what's going on there. So let's pick up where we left off last week in verse 41. It says this, So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. We saw that last week. When we see the word baptized there in verse 42, we have to remember what Peter said in verse 38. He said you have to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Why was he so specific about that? Because in the Jewish world, especially in the first century, baptism was not always associated with Jews. Baptism was associated with Gentiles, meaning people who were non-Jewish. Individuals who had been living completely apart from God, in many cases pagan. And so if they wanted to become a God follower, they were baptized into the Judaistic faith. But Jews didn't need to be baptized because they're already Jews and they believe they're the chosen people of God. So why would they need to go through baptism? So Jews are looking upon a command from God telling them to be baptized by Peter in the name of Jesus as something that was an absolutely traumatic experience. Not only something that culturally didn't always happen in their society, but also in the name of Jesus, the very one that they had just executed as a criminal just 50 days earlier. So here's what baptism is for them. Same thing it is for you and I. It's a public witness of saying, Here's who I am. I'm willing to put a billboard out there and say, I belong to Jesus. So Jews who were followers of Jesus now, 3,000 of them take this first step of faith. They're baptized in the name of Jesus. What does that lead them into? Well, the very next verse, as you'll see in verse 43 and verse 42, is going to tell us that these 3,000 people all of a sudden didn't know what they didn't know. They had to be taught. They didn't get to walk with Jesus for three years like the disciples did. So now they've got to be taught, and they've got to be connected into the life of the church. I'm going to show you a very simple formula to help you understand what's going on here. You'll see this formula on the screen come up three times this morning. But here's what's going on. When you take spiritual duty, the things that God tells us to do, and you mix it together with your right attitude, with a spiritual attitude, things happen. You became, become an impact upon society. In other words, another word for witness. Well, let's see how that unfolds as we move forward. Go with me to verse 42. It says, They, meaning the 3,000 people, were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. So we've got this newborn church, newborn group of people, which has exploded in size, which has a focus, a single course of action. In your notes this morning, you see this very first Greek word that's mentioned that is is up on the screen as well, and it's talking about what this being devoted looks like. Steadfast resolve. Here's why it's significant in their world. It was always associated with wedding vows. When an individual identified who his bride was going to be or the bride likewise identified who her groom was going to be, this particular word was associated with the vows made to each other in a wedding ceremony meaning they were completely committing themselves to one another. So this word that's been used for weddings has now been transferred over to the church. The church is completely devoted and focused to four distinct trademarks that are mentioned in verse 42. What were the trademarks? Well, we're told right there, teaching, fellowship, 
worship, and prayer. Let's go through those four really quickly. Teaching is the very first one, which we recognize here at New Hope is the foundation of a healthy biblical church. As a matter of fact, it's said this way in Scripture, 1 Peter 2.2, 2, like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. What that verse tells me is that none of us gets to be lactose intolerant. We don't. God says when it comes to my word, it's like pure milk and you have to long for it because it causes you to grow. As a matter of fact, it has a specific impact upon us when we begin to share God's word with others. Paul expressed it this way. He described the process in 2 Timothy 2.2. He said, the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses... These entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Meaning, take this powerful word and keep passing it on, sharing it with others. My experience is this. I don't know if it's true of you, but in my experience, if I don't regularly learn truth from God's word, my spiritual life goes into decline. At worst, it can go into decline. At best, it'd be like in a vegetative state. So I've got to be feeding on God's Word because we're told it'll cause us to grow. So the Bible you hold in your hands this morning, God says, is food. It's food for growth. And food, it's power. And there's no other alternative source. God says, this is it. So my perspective, you may not entirely agree with me this morning. My perspective is this. I know this to be 100% the inspired Word of God. I I believe this to be 100% the real deal, not a collection of myths or fables, but God's Word handed to man. I had an individual approach me after the last service when I shared that and and said, what if I'm not there yet? What if I don't believe it's 100% the real deal? I said, it's okay that you're here this morning is an expression that God's calling you and working on your heart. So if that's you this morning, you're not there 100%. God's calling you and working upon you. The very fact that you're here means you're interested and investigating. But that's where I stand. I believe this to be the inspired Word of God. Now, this is going to sound like I'm disrespecting churches around the country, and in fact, I guess I am by the statements I'm about to make. But I want you to hear me clearly on this. I don't know how else to say it. Many churches around the country have become motionless, meaning there's no momentum. If if you look at your bulletin this morning or you look at the notes and in the very top corner on the front of the bulletin, it says that we're calling this series Truth Momentum, meaning that we take this truth and it causes momentum in our lives. There's activity as a result of taking God's Word and bringing it in. But many churches have become motionless. There's no momentum. Why? My understanding is they have stopped offering the exposition of Scripture. They have stopped teaching God's Word as being God's Word and being absolutely authentic. There's a warning that God gives us when it comes to that issue. But just let me help frame this for just a moment. Do you know that you live in a country where 83% of the population says, I am a Christian I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God. But on any given weekend in America, 18% of the American population can be found in a church service. Why the disparity? Why would 83% say, I believe that Jesus Christ is God, but 18% find themselves involved in a church? There's a huge gap. Would you not say there's something wrong 
There's something going on. Why are people not committed to understanding more of what it means to be in the life of a church? God says this, Hosea 4.6, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Meaning if you don't learn about me, you're going to slide. There's going to be problems if you're not feeding on who I am. Authentic truth. A church cannot operate in truth if it's not taught truth. So that's our view here at New Hope. We teach truth. What does that look like in a healthy church? 1 Timothy 4.13, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. I think many churches are involved in the public reading of Scripture, but not many churches are involved in exhortation or in teaching. Here's, here's one step further. 2 Timothy 4.1, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. That's kind of like a job description for me, telling me what my responsibility is that I've got to have great patience and instruct thoroughly when it comes to God's Word. So if you're new to church, maybe you're new to New Hope, and you've never been taught to think life through the lens of the Bible, I think New Hope is a great place to start. And you start this way by saying, I'm going to admit, I have never been taught to track life theologically. I have never been taught to think of life through the lens of the Bible, but I'm willing to do that. If, if you're willing to start there, I think God's willing to meet you right at the point of your need and help you to understand that. If you look across this auditorium or you go to any of the other services, you might be tempted to come into an auditorium like this and think, man, look at all these people with their Bibles. They must really have their spiritual act together. M- most of us would say we are on a journey, right, church? We're in a learning process, working our way along. So for people coming in new to a place like New Hope, they can think of this as being really intimidating, but just know you're in an auditorium full of individuals who are sinners saved by grace. That's just who we are, and we're learning about this walk with God, trying to get better and better at what we do. So that's the teaching side. Let's go to the fellowship side. That's the second one that was mentioned. And the word that's actually used for fellowship is koinonia, and it literally means a partnership. You find it expressed all the way throughout the Bible in various verses. I'm, I'm just going to give you three examples of it, of what that looks like when you've got fellowship going on. Here's the first one. 1 Thessalonians 5.11. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another. Here's another one. 1 Peter 4.9. Be hospitable to one another. Here's another one. Philippians 2.3. Regard one another as more important than yourself. That's an easy one, right? I mean, we got that one down. That that, that is one of the hardest ones, to regard someone as more important than ourselves. These are part of the one another's that are associated with fellowship. Here's my view on this. It is not just a responsibility. It is a privilege. It is a privilege to encourage each other, that we get to motivate each other. This has to do with that formula for attitude. Now, logically, we're going to have to ask ourselves, how can we do that if we're not in community together? And that's what koinonia is all about. It requires us doing life together. So here's a thought for you. Those who commit their life to Jesus Christ step into fellowship or partnership with him according to Scripture. That means we step into koinonia or partnership with each other. Watch the flow of this, how it plays out in 1 John 1.3. It says, What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you, 
meaning he was talking about the resurrection of Jesus, so that you too may have fellowship, koinonia, with us, and indeed, our koinonia is with the Father and with his Son, Christ. So here's a problem. When Christians say, I don't need to participate in the life of a church, that is a major fail because we're missing a mandate of Scripture. When God says, you need each other. So if I isolate myself, I'm becoming disobedient. And this is a huge issue today because many people are beginning to treat church as though it's optional. Now, I understand some individuals are disillusioned. They've had some rotten church experiences in their past. They watched infighting or they watched political arguing within a church or a whole bunch of red tape and it just kind of discouraged them. That does happen for a percentage of people, but here's where most people believe that I believe they land. Most people believe they have a better method and it sounds like this. I can really connect with God when I'm on the golf course. I, I really am doing great with God in my walk with him when I am canoeing down a river. Man, when I stay home and watch the cooking channel, I go into praise and hallelujah. Yeah, see, it, it sounds like it's reasonable because people say, I, I've found an alternative method. I've found a better way to connect with God. Here's what I'm afraid they're, they're really saying. I don't want to be accountable to anyone else. I want to run my own program, which is extraordinarily American because we are an independent people, are we not? We, we love our independence, and so we transfer that right into the life of the church. But So when we do life in community, we do it for this reason, because God designed it that way. He didn't intend for us to be lone rangers. So if we're not doing it, here's what we're ultimately saying. I know better than God. Now, just so you understand, this koinonia thing, this fellowship that we're doing, this is part of what they were devoted to. This koinonia fellowship, this is eternal. It, it transfers from planet Earth right into eternity. We will be in fellowship with one another in eternity because God is in fellowship with us. So what that tells you is you're stuck with me forever, all right? Now, you may get a galaxy of your own someday, but I will hunt you down, I promise you, <laughs> because we're going to have a Coke together. We're in fellowship together. That's what God intended. So that's number one and two, teaching and fellowship. Number three is the breaking of bread. And I want you to understand this is strongly connected with worship. Perhaps you haven't looked at it that way before, but what he's talking about here is not an ordinary meal. This is bookmarked between two really loaded terms. It's bookmarked between the fellowship and between the prayer, so that should raise your attention level right away. What he's talking about here is the celebration of the Lord's Supper, the breaking of bread that was part of communion, what you're about to do here in a few minutes. Now, let's remember, first of all, that Jesus didn't say this is optional. He said, when you do this, not if you feel like doing this, but when you do this, you're doing this in remembrance of me. Here is why I know that it's strongly connected with worship. First of all, my God knows that I am prone to memory problems. You are too. That's why we see in the Old Testament, he gave the Jews all those feasts so they would get together and celebrate what he had done for them. Well, communion is a celebration. It's a feast. It might be a very small feast, but it's a celebration feast to remember what he did for us. So what happens during communion? If you've been here at New Hope very long, you know that I read 1 Corinthians chapter 11 to you just before we participate in communion. And in there is a very specific instruction. It says, before you eat of, the, uh, eat of the bread and drink of the cup, you are to what, church? Examine yourselves. 
So there's something going on in that examining process that's connected with worship. When we examine ourselves, we're looking to see if there needs to be any sin purged, anything that needs to be confessed before the Father. That purifying action, according to God's design, is absolutely vital because that ongoing confrontation of sin in my life, at the same time, causes me to remember what he did to take away my sin on the cross. That's what worship is. Think about the song that we just sang, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, what I once was but no longer am. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. See, that's worship. You're talking about what was true, but what is no longer true. That's what we're talking about in communion. That's worship. It's beautifully expressed in how you and I get to do this together in 1 Corinthians 10. I don't know if you've ever even read this verse before, but I want you to see it through that lens. 1 Corinthians 10, 16 says this, Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body. See, the picture here is that we're doing this together. We are all partakers of the one bread. We do this in koinonia fellowship. So here's what I understand about what we've looked at, these first three components. A group of people with a unique identity who are learning together, loving together, and now we see worshiping together. And they've got one more component They're devoted to prayer. Look at this last component that was mentioned in verse 42. It says these individuals were devoted to learning, devoted to loving, devoted to worship, and devoted to prayer. Now, if you've spent any length of time at all in your prayer life connecting with God, you know it's work, isn't it? It's hard to stay focused. I mean, there's so many things going on in our world to distract us. To pray more than five minutes, to pray more than two minutes is sometimes a challenge, but praying more than five minutes, praying 10 minutes, these individuals, we're told, are devoted to prayer. Here's why I think they're absolutely eagerly engaged in prayer. I believe they expect God to respond. There is an expectation that God's going to do something when we come to him in sincerity. This expectation looks like this. Perhaps you saw this story in the news in the last four days. I I happen to read it in Fox News myself, but I know it's across the networks in many places. Four days ago, a group of boys fell through the ice in St. Louis, Missouri. They were playing outside on a lake, and they went through, and the ice was too thin. Paramedics showed up to rescue them. Two of the boys were pulled out. And they began to work on them on the shoreline, but one had been under the ice for 15 minutes. They couldn't locate him at first. By the time they pulled him out, his heart was dead. Everything had stopped. Pulse, nothing could be registered on him. They rushed him to the hospital, tried to resuscitate him. Not possible. There was no heartbeat whatsoever. He's in the emergency room, and the doctors finally gave up and said, "Uh, this young man's gone. Somebody on the staff went out in the hallway and found his mother. His mother was waiting in the hallway for news and brought him in to see her dead son in the emergency room. And when she walked through and passed the curtain and saw her son white as a ghost, this is what she yelled out, Holy God, send your spirit to save my son. The very next words in the emergency room were, We got a pulse. We got a pulse. We've got a pulse. Doctors couldn't believe it. 
So the doctors actually wrote the story for Fox News and said, this is a bona fide miracle. I've never seen anything like this. What's going on there? That mom, beyond just the expectation, had a sense of desperation. She had the expectation that God could do this, but there's desperation in a mom's voice when she knows that her son is dead, and she believed that God would show up in that moment. I think these individuals are completely devoted to prayer because of commitments that Jesus had made to them. I'll explain that in just a moment, but let me show you Romans and how it said in Romans 12.10 what we're supposed to do in regard to prayer. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Not lagging behind in diligence. Fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer. Here's why I believe they relentlessly pursued God through prayer. Because of Jesus' commitment to them in John 14, 13. And he said it this way. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. There's a critical component to that verse. Anybody anybody here that's experienced with prayer knows what that critical component is. In my name. That's the hard part. Because I often pray in Mark's name. How about you? Do you pray in your own will or do you pray in the will of God? Specifically, I think that's when the disciples came to Jesus and said, how should we pray? Jesus responded this way. When you pray, pray according to this. Our Father who is in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. See, we've got to be praying for God's will, not our will. And we're tempted many times to pray for our will. So the truth is, God always answers prayers. It's just sometimes he answers no. It's not his will. Sometimes it is. And in the case of that woman in Missouri, it obviously was his will to put his glory on display. So those are the four trademarks of this early first century church that are unique to the life of new hope. If we are to be what God has called us to be, we've got to be doing this studying the word, fellowship, Breaking of bread and prayer. Learning, loving, worship, prayer. You pick up our ink pens, you'll find that it's stamped right on there. You pick up the bulletins, it's stamped right on there. Learning, loving, worship, prayer. So let's come back to the formula that I showed you just a few minutes ago. This formula is very, very simple. But when you mix together our spiritual duty, learning, loving, worship, prayer, you add in the right spiritual attitude about those things. The result is you're going to have impact in your society. You're going to be a witness. So let's look at how they witness. Verse 43, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. So a church that's fulfilling its spiritual duty, and by church I mean us collectively, right? We're the church. I'm not talking about the building. A group of people dedicated to Christ, when we're fulfilling our spiritual duties with the right attitude, things happen. It produces a spiritual identity in the community. The word everyone in the Greek language actually means, in an ambiguous way, those outside and those inside, meaning people in the community are watching them. People in the community are watching us to see if this is authentic, is this real? 
Now, we're told that they were put in a sense of awe. That's the word phobos. It, it literally means the fear or the terror of God. There's a awe about the presence of God working through the lives of his people. We see an example of that in Luke chapter 7 when Jesus raised the widow's son from the dead. Jesus had a, a, a woman who um, had lost her only son. They're on their way to the cemetery to bury him. Jesus interrupts the funeral and raises the boy from the dead. And it says everyone was filled with holy terror because the presence of God was obviously there. When God's presence is working through his people, there is an awe about the things of God. So when spiritual gifts are operating the way they're supposed to, and each of you have one, whether you think so or not, if you're a believer in Jesus, you have spiritual gifts, then God is magnified and people are drawn to the kingdom. Verse 44 tells us what that looks like. Verse 44, and all those who had believed were together and had all things in common, and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Now, we talked about this briefly before, so I'm not going to touch on it a whole lot, but that they were sharing and selling everything that they had doesn't mean they're living in a commune, okay? That's, that's not what's going on. This is not communal living. We understand that each believer understands that we have a responsibility. If you're a follower of Jesus, we have a responsibility to give to the work of God, and, and that finds its expression within the church. But that is done as a result of the Spirit's prompting, not because someone tells you to do it, but rather because the Holy Spirit in your life, you give in response to spiritual activity. That's why Scripture says no one's supposed to give under compulsion, but rather out of joy because of the Holy Spirit at work within you. So there's a principle that's going on here. If they're not living in a commune, what is the principle? It cuts across all categories of wealth and all categories of poverty, and it's known as communism. Communism means they're willing to share what they have, sharing with people who are in deep need. So let's put this in the context of the first century. We've got people who have showed up for a feast. They've come from around the known world to be in Jerusalem for Pentecost. Some of them have encountered Jesus and have been added to this group of 3,000. And they don't necessarily want to go home at the end of their vacation. They want to be part of this work of God that's going on in the city. Now, when you come into a feast in the first century, there were not Marriott's, there were not Holiday Inns, there, there were not places to stay. So you would typically stay when you came into a city with people you didn't even know, or perhaps some of your relatives were living there. But you could very likely, for the course of seven days, have strangers in your home because they were in fellowship together. Well, it was common to meet the needs of those visitors. But what about when those visitors become permanent guests in your home? Well, those permanent guests needed help because they're part of the church too. And then you've got people who lost their jobs because they identified with Jesus. And they say, I belong to this. And so people excommunicated them from the synagogue saying, we don't want you in our community anymore. And then you've got other individuals who are just poor. So what we see going on here is this group has banded together, this church, to meet the needs of people who were struggling this is a model for enormous generosity, but it's purely voluntary. What does that look like here at New Hope? Well, we have this thing called the Compassionate Care Fund. Many of you contribute to that. The last time I checked, I believe there's like $10,000 in the Compassionate Care Fund. How do we use that? 
There's individuals within our church who sometimes struggle with meeting the, the bills that they have, their power bills, or you know, single moms who struggle with buying diapers or food for their children. Other individuals who have needed help paying their mortgage. That's what the Compassionate Care Fund is there for. We've got another thing that's launching in the next month called the Stephen Ministry. And the Stephen Ministry is meant for those of us who are in the church to be able to use our gifts outside the church, serving this community who's looking to understand who is this God? All these components of sharing are common among the first century church. So let's look at the impact. Verse 46, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. In other words, they didn't wait for one particular day. It wasn't just Sunday when they got together. It says day by day. Do you notice they're still going to the temple? Now, they're Jews by birth, by, biologically, but they're Christ followers now, yet they're still going to the temple. What's going on? They're putting themselves on display. Their heart is such for the community. They want people who are at the temple who don't know Jesus yet to understand there's real life change going on here. So they're putting themselves in a place where they can be open about their faith. And we're told as a result of doing that, they're also spending time together, taking their meals together. So they're breaking bread in worship, but they're taking meals together, hanging out together, like on Sunday night. Here's a shameless plug. Tonight there's a get-together if you're in your 50s and 60s out at my house um, at 6 o'clock tonight if you want to show up and qualify yourself as being in that age group and not ashamed, go ahead and show up for that. So uh, 50s and 60s year old, we'd love to have you come out and hang out with us tonight. That's an example of what you see going on here. So it's absolutely no surprise that this church, which is deliberate about teaching, this church, which is truly in fellowship together, this church, which is actively worshiping together and is praying together, is a church characterized by those two words you see in that last verse sincerity, and gladness. In the Greek language, it, it means there's no rocks. There's no hard spots in their heart. You are people who are doing life together in such a way that it's having a profound impact on their community. So it's no surprise this church is busting open. Verse 47 is our last verse for today, and it says this, they were praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who are being saved. So let's come back to our really simple formula again to end this. Look at what they're doing. They've got the spiritual duty down, devoted to teaching, devoted to worship, devoted to prayer, devoted to fellowship, got the right attitude within it. And the spiritual impact is enormous. Notice, first of all, what it says in verse 47. They're having favor with all the people. That's not just the people inside the church. That's the people who make up the community of Jerusalem. No wonder two chapters later we see that on top of the 3,000 people, 5,000 more were added to the church. You think 3,000 was big. What happens when you become a church of 8,000? They're an attractive church, so they've got favor with all the people. The Lord is adding to their number. That means that they're doing things according to God's plan and the inevitable impact of a healthy church that's teaching the Word of God that's loving the way that it's supposed to love, that's praying the way that it's supposed to pray, that's worshiping the way that it's supposed to worship, is that they're going to reproduce. It's organic. It's not one of the things we do. It's the byproduct of everything that we do. 
So what we're looking at here, church, is identifiable life change because people in the community are watching us and we become a witness to what it looks like to live life in community. So perhaps you're feeling like maybe you don't witness enough based on how you carry out these four principles is a determination of whether or not you're witnessing what it looks like to live in community. You're going to get to be a witness in just a minute when you lift up the communion cup. So what we're looking at here is this bigger issue of how does this apply to us directly? Well, New Hope, Jesus has just clarified this for us. When we do life together, it is so other, the world pays attention. It is so other. People notice. So here's a reminder for us this morning. We influence how other people respond to Jesus based on how we live these things out. I believe that New Hope Church is at a strategic point in time. If we really understand those statistics, that 18% of Americans can find themselves in a church on any given weekend, but 83% say they're Christian but want nothing to do with the church and don't show up, there's something wrong. There's something wrong with the church of Jesus Christ. We are at a strategic point in time. I've done the research, and I know what the research reports, and it says this. Of the 83% who identify themselves as Christians, the number one reason people even bother to show up at church, to be involved in the life of a community, the number one reason is because they want an authentic encounter with the living God, and they're not finding it. And so people bail. They're finding it's not there. It's not present in the church. Why should I bother going? That's why I believe we're at a strategic point in time. And for those individuals between the 83% and the 100%, those 17% who don't identify themselves as Christian, you know they're longing for something as well because God wired us for relationship. That's how we're built. It's in our DNA. So ultimately, what we're really talking about here is it's all about relationship, relationship with God. If you're sitting here this morning and you feel that resonating within your heart, you're reading this Acts chapter 2 stuff and you're thinking, I want that. Know this, first of all. It's because that's God working on your heart. Man can't do that. I can't inspire that. That's God drawing you in, wanting you to have relationship with him. So God's plan is that you would have relationship with him. That's the gospel in a nutshell. That's what it really means. Uh, Let me give you a verse that is spoken by Jesus himself in regards to relationship as we bring this to an end. Look with me at Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. I know that that last word on that sentence is one of the hardest things to find in our society. Do you agree? Rest. And he's not just talking about physical rest. That's hard enough to find because we are so busy. He's talking about the kind of rest that allows you to know that you know that you know that your soul is secure for eternity. The kind of rest that lets you sleep at two in the morning. The kind of rest that knows that God's got it. Come to me if you're burdened, if you've got a lot of weight, and I will give you rest. 
what's really important about that verse is that you should notice that God made the first move. He sent out the invitation card. He's the one that expects us to respond. So if you're not a believer this morning and this is very curious to you and you've been looking for this, maybe this is the first time you've ever heard this before, I want you to hear this very, very clearly. God not only sent out the invitation card, he's waiting for you to respond. So you might be thinking, how do I respond to that? Well, here's what the RSVP looks like. and It comes right from Scripture, 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature, or your translation might say a new creation. Meaning Jesus, if you're in him, will give you a brand new beginning. A brand new beginning. Your sins will be separated as far as the east is from the west. And God goes one step further and he says, I will remember them no more. That's our God who wants us in relationship with him. He wants it so much that he went to the length of sending his son to the cross. So you may be at the place this morning where you're ready to begin the relationship. I'm here for you. I'd love to talk with you after the service. And and if you don't have time to stick around, grab one of the note cards, write it on there, and slide it in the offering box. Just let me know that you want to connect. What you are about to watch, if if you're not a believer this morning, but this is absolutely intriguing to you, if, if you're watching what takes place next, you are about to see a community of believers who are in koinonia fellowship, who are about to worship the living God, Because we know that we know that we know that Jesus went to the cross for our sins and that he died to bring us into relationship with him. So we're going to step into communion right now.